as a child, I always wanted a house made of works. And I'm, I'm kind of working towards that dream because nowadays I stumble everywhere <laughs> over books. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmad, and today I'm chatting with Damianti Biswas. She's an author, blogger, animal lover, and spiritualist. Her first novel is represented by Ed Wilson from the Johnson and Alcock Agency. When not pottering about with her plants or her aquariums, you can find her nose deep in a book or baking up a storm. Her debut literary crime novel, You Beneath Your Skin, is an Amazon bestseller and optioned for the screens by Endemol Shine. Before I bring up our conversation, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. And now, without further ado, pull up a seat. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Damianti Biswas, the author of You Beneath Your Skin. Damianti, welcome to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Shinas, for having me. I'm really happy we can talk this way. I look forward to it. I'm really excited talking about your book because I read your book and so I'm just going to ask you, what did you hope were the themes that your readers will get out of it? Actually, when I was writing it, I had no such hope. I did not want my readers <laughs> to get any themes out of it. I was writing the story because it wouldn't leave me alone. And I think it's a bit presumptuous of authors to think that readers should take something away from a book. I think readers come to the book with their own expectations, their own insights, their own background, their knowledge. So what they take away from a book, uh, an author really has very little control. So an author tries to tell the best story they can, or at least this author does. So I try and write the best story I can. I try not to bore the reader. I try to respect their time. I try to respect the fact that they actually bought the book and read the book and, you know, what they think about the book and what they take away from the book is completely for them to decide. I have no expectations or I love hearing what they, you know, think and most of the times I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased, sometimes I'm surprised, but as a, for me, I've moved on to writing the next book. So what surprises you? You said sometimes you're surprised. So what is, yeah, what is something surprising I mean, that happens? Things, small things, sometimes uh, they kind of, for example, in the book, we have Pavan and Maya's love story. And a lot of the readers were so moved by their story and they said, we want, you know, sequels with them in it. Like there were a lot of people who like Jatin and Anjali's story and kind of, you know, wanted to kind of construct their ending of it and how it goes on. But I was really surprised by the number of people who said, 
you know, Maya and Pawan, what happens to them next? Can we have like a <laughs> Pawan lead in the next book? Are you doing a book with, uh, you know, Maya leading? I really liked their, you know, so that was surprising because for me, they are, uh, you know, characters who are in the supporting cast. Not that they have received any less attention because of that, because I think all characters need to be real. They need to have their own desires, their own needs. So it's not as if they receive less attention from me, but I kind of didn't expect them to get a lot of attention from the readers and they did. So that, that was lovely. Yeah. I think that switches the genre. They want a love story. They want that cute rom-com between Maya and Pawan maybe. I don't know, maybe. Uh, well, the book is pretty grim. You believe right. your skin is not light entertainment. So, right. uh, so there is Maya and Pawan's story is a bit of light that kind of plays contrast to the darkness. And Pawan's character is the one character which kind of acts as a foil to all the other characters because every other character is flawed and his you know, maybe a little bit of diffidence maybe, but he isn't by intention. He is not as flawed because I wanted somebody to contrast with everybody else. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's fair. Hey guys, it's me. I had to edit some spoilers out, but let's get right back to this conversation and take it from where Damianti is talking about making difficult decisions for some of her favorite characters. And why not go there? I think it goes from the places of discomfort. The place that is the most uncomfortable is the place from where you get the most energy. Whatever is your comfort zone, you're not going to get anywhere with that. You have to push your comfort zone. You have to put yourself and your characters in really uncomfortable places because if there is no discomfort, everything, there's no desire, right? Tell me about um, your experience with acid attack victims. I know you work with them or something like that. And so tell me about your research that goes behind writing this book. Well, uh, when I first started writing the book, it was not about acid attacks at all. But after a while, I wanted something that made violence against women uh, quite visible. So something that was a very visible uh, reminder of what a woman has suffered. Because a lot of the times, uh, a woman suffers a lot, but a lot of it is not visible. You meet her, she is... She, when you look at her, it's very hard to say what she has gone through and the scars. And to me, I, I was thinking about how, you know, to make the pain visible so that the, the reader kind of reacts to that. And uh, at the time I happened to uh, read, I think it's called Beautiful. It's a memoir about an acid attack survivor. And I said, yes, this is something that we could think about. But then I said, I don't know anything about acid attacks. I mean, what gives me the right to write about it? So I said, okay, fine, let's, let's research in India, in Delhi. And uh, I found out about stop acid attacks. So I went and I met the acid attack survivors. I kind of made an appointment with them and I met the survivors. And the first time I met them, uh, 
I, I was horrified. It was so hard for me to speak even. And they will, and you know, they taught me how to speak to them because they were just, you know, so full of life, so full of joy even at that moment that somebody had actually come and, you know, started, you know, a conversation with them, was asking them about their, and these at that time, they were very newly come into Stop Acid Attacks. Stop Acid Attacks itself was a very new organization at the time. I'm talking about, I think, seven or eight years ago, 2014. So they, I think, started in 2012 or 13, if I'm not mistaken. I think they started in 2013. And uh, as you know, uh, now the, you know, there has been a lot more attention to the issue, thanks largely to also Chapak by Deepika Padukone, which is based on some of the some of the characters that you see in the movie they are part of stop acid attacks so yeah that is when i think once i started talking to them i kind of realized that i could not just kind of fetishize it or just like add it like a plot point so their pain was real these are real people so that's when i decided to get very serious about how i was going to write about acid attacks and of course i've been in touch with them been interacting with them the proceeds of the novel the option they are going to them now that uh, the book is going to be optioned to screen so it's you know those proceeds will go to them so i'm in i'm in touch and we keep speaking but as to research the research was mostly speaking to them speaking to their doctor speaking to you know somebody who counsels them counselors who have counseled as the attack survivors so all of that so your book's going to screen tell me about that uh yeah it was optioned uh by endomol shine so okay. they hope to create a tv series out of it but okay let's see how that goes because we've had this long year 202021 so we will see how that goes we will see how that proceeds so that would be so that. exciting that's super exciting so i'm curious about you you're a writer but you also teach writing correct yes i do so where did that all start like the whole journey of you becoming a teacher and now you're an author you know which way did it go where you're an author before you became a teacher i mean how did that go well i don't know if you can be a teacher without being some sort of an author because unless you've done it yourself is really hard i do not really do the teaching part uh, a lot i kind of for me i'm mostly an author but i do give away my time sometimes so i mentor uh, through the pitch wars mentorship program which lot of authors who have already published or who are agented they kind of work with you know authors who are still writing their book or have finished the first draft i do mentor uh, other writers on a personal basis and i kind of try and you know that's my way of fundraising for the you know non profits that i volunteer for so i keep it very low profile i'll do a maybe a workshop or two but i don't know if i have so much to teach i know i have a lot to learn so isn't yeah. that everybody though or do you feel that's potentially i'm just asking is this potentially a little bit of imposter syndrome like well i have a lot to learn you know so i don't know how much i have to teach when you have an amazing book you know you have all the stuff Well, I think an imposter syndrome is a good thing. I think an author who doesn't have an imposter syndrome is probably never going to 
push the boundaries and is probably never going to grow as an author. I mean, it's nice to be confident about your work. Yes, I am confident about the work that I do. Like I know that I write and I don't feel uh, shy about the fact that I'm a writer or an author. But at the same time, I think if I do not doubt what I'm doing, then, and if I do not question what I'm doing every single day, every time I sit down to write, especially, you know, after I've written the first draft, like when I write the first draft, I'm God. I, I literally write from a place of being God because I just say I'm the creator. So okay. The first draft, there's like super abundance of confidence, but second draft onwards, the questions begin. And it's, I think at that time, the imposter syndrome or the self-doubt really comes in handy because it kind of picks holes into your story and says, oh, so what about that? So what, so how did you say this? Or what are you saying? Or yeah, is this really what you want to say? And I think that's important, right? Because unless you do that, you would keep on rehashing the same old thing, same old thing, same old thing. And you're not challenging yourself. And if you're not challenging yourself, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, then you're not giving the readers new things to think about or new things to enjoy. So I think it's really important. I think uh, I really like the idea that most authors are filled with self-doubt because that leads to progress, right? Otherwise, you'll stagnate if you're not, if you're Or it leads order leads to being frozen like I had my novel for a while and I was like this totally it's just the worst novel ever written nobody's gonna read it it's fine I read it I love it it's fine I'll just keep it everyone's gonna hate it it's okay it, it just there's that it's a big weight how do you get a how do you get past that feeling that this is no good and how do you know this is good how do you I mean internally I'm going this is such a simple story. This is just, there's not complicated. It's such a simple, dumb story. People don't want simple, dumb stories anymore. How do you get past all of that? So number one, I think I am not really concerned about what readers want when I'm writing my book. So if I really go and think about all the readers, I would paralyze myself because even God can't please everyone, right? Like God right. hasn't pleased everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, we would all be a very happy bunch if God had the power to make us all happy. And no, that's not the case. So we have to accept with a certain degree of humility that we cannot please everyone. So that is one thing where we put our ego aside and we say, we write the story that pleases just one person. So the one person who you would think whose opinion maybe matters to you or, you know, you would really appreciate them reading your book. And this somebody has to be like a, like a nourishing person, like a friend or whoever who, whose opinion matters to you, but who's not this person who keeps on telling you, you'll amount to nothing. No, not that. Person. Right, right. But somebody who is who 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 has been nurturing, who has been friendly, and you put that person, and you know, you write for that person. You imagine writing for that person, and this is again very subjective. Everything I say, like take it with a bag of salt. I mean, I'm just simply saying every time a writer says do this or that's great, they're just talking about their personal experience, and every writer is different because they're different people. So. 
part of the journey is finding out what works for you. So I know that this works for me. I do not write for everyone. I write for like one person. And when I told that person, she she was she was like, really? Me? And I'm like, yeah, you. And uh, yeah, and she is the one, and she's she's a friend. We're not, we're not really some people who are really close and we are very thick and we are talking every day. We probably go for months and years without talking, but she is the kind of reader I would like to please. And that's that's who every time, that's who I think about when I'm writing my novel. And so then that's very clear that I just have to please this person. That's not hard compared to, you know, I don't know what so many people want. I know what this person wants and I'm going to write to her. So, you know, I know what I want. I know what that person wants. And as to the the, the person, we all have these people, right? We internalize a lot of voices that tell us, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, there are a lot of negative Nancy's in all our lives. And I think sometimes even during our upbringing, right? When we are brought up, a lot of parents, you know, traditional parents, especially in Asia, a lot of times, they believe that if you praise the child too much, you're spoiling the child. So they keep on telling the child, you're not studying enough. You know, you've not come to anything, not because they believe it, but because they feel that's the way to inspire a child. But the thing is, while we are growing up, we internalize those voices. And even though we outgrow our family homes, our family beds, and sometimes even after, you know, the, the people who used to say it are no longer there, but we keep them alive inside of us. And then it is very important to kind of ask them, yes, please come in. And here I am, this is my writing desk. And here is a chair, like sit there and you're welcome to it. Like, please sit there. But when I'm writing, you have to be quiet. You cannot speak, those are the rules. You cannot speak, you can be in the room, but do not speak when I'm writing my first draft. After I have finished my first draft, I'm done being super goddess of this world who's created this wonderful masterpiece. That is when you start telling me how this is not a masterpiece. And the second draft onwards, I stay quiet and you can speak. And please realize that you're getting the better end of the deal because, you know, sometimes I write up to 15 drafts. I wrote You Beneath Your Skin was 15 drafts. So you get to speak for 14 drafts. But the first draft is mine, is belongs to me. And I write it and you keep quiet. You have to stay quiet. And what happens is once something has come into this world from this place of pleasing yourself and pleasing that one writer, then it becomes slightly easier. I wouldn't say that it's very easy to do revision, but I find it personally very tough. People ask me, what do you find the easiest about writing? I say, having written, what do you find the toughest? Everything. I find writing really, really hard. I really find that, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Really, I really don't know why I do it. And sometimes I wish I wouldn't do it, but I do it. So, so the thing is, this person beside you who goes yappity, 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 yeah, saying it's all very bad, that person is very useful then in the revision stages because that's who you want, right? You need that editorial voice going, this is not working, that is not working. And then to your question, how do you know it's good enough? I don't know if it's ever good enough. I mean, 
I mean, I had the book right here with me. I don't think it's good enough. It's really not, you know, because if it were good enough, then I can stop writing, right? I don't need to write the next book. So it's never good enough. So I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, you know, you never perfect the work. It's you merely abandon it. You don't finish it because at one point, like my agent would say, stop tinkering, you know, stop tinkering, Damianti. You, I think it's ready to go on submission. And that's the point at which I stop. And again, with the publisher, with the editor, they would say, Damianti, stop, you know, messing with it. I think it's ready to go to the printer. So at that point, you finish, not because you're tremendously happy and you think it's this perfect work, but I mean, what choice do you have? And you have another book to get to and you're excited about that one. So you know, go to that book and try and forget that you ever wrote this one. So again, that's just my personal take. That's how I manage it. I manage my situation, but I know that the number of authors I've met, and these include Booker Prize winners all the way to, you know, somebody who's just beginning to write, they all have their own coping mechanisms. And part of being a writer is listening to a whole lot of people and then figuring out what resonates with you as a writer. And if it resonates with you, you pick it up. If it doesn't resonate with you, doesn't matter if they're a Booker Prize winner or a Nobel Prize winner, doesn't matter at all. You pick up what matters to you, what resonates with you as a creator, and then you use it. Or something might occur to you that's unique to you. And, you know, but that's the journey. The journey is figuring out What's your process? What does it, what works for you? So becoming a writer is not about how many books you published. Becoming a writer is about what are you doing with the process? What is your writing process? Who are you as a writer? Why are you writing? How do you cope with self-doubt? How do you unfreeze yourself? And we all freeze from time to time. The only thing is we just have to also remember to be kind to ourselves. So Shanaz, if I came to you saying, I have written this first book, but the second book, you know, I, I don't think it's good enough. I think it's going to be terrible. I don't think I'll ever write. You'll tell me, Damianti, like, you know, chill a bit, never mind, look, you know. So give the advice that you would give your friends. So treat yourself with the same kindness and the same compassion and with the same love that you would treat your friends, right? I mean, why reserve everything for your friends? I'm not saying, you know, don't be kind to your friends, but I'm simply saying, turn that kindness around and be kind to yourself as well. Because every time you say, nobody wants me, nobody wants this, nobody wants my writing, what, what happens to you? The creative self within you, the child within you, that is that creator, kind of feels hurt, right? Because what is writing? Writing really is like, of, you know, being in kindergarten and playing with baseball and pen and, you know, what comes from there, that is true creativity, right? So what are you doing to that four-year-old, three-year-old toddler who is with so much pride showing something to you and you're saying, you suck. Will you do that? <laughs> no, right. You wouldn't do it to your children. Don't do it to the creative child within you. I mean, to me, that, that's, again, like I said, very subjective. No, that's, that's really, that's beautiful. And that's really good advice, I think, because it's like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm working on a book and I just finished the second draft and I could swear, like, this is like the worst book ever. Well, I was really surprised because someone read, like a friend of mine, she's 18. She read the first 20 pages and 
her only, she calls me auntie. And she's like, the only thing she said after reading the first 20 pages, she said, auntie, I don't care if your book is published or it's not published or what happens. But after you go through your entire journey and you've tried everything, and let's say, for God forbid, it doesn't get published, you have to promise me to send me the whole book because I want to know what happens. So then you've got your reader. I've got, got, you've got your reader. You know, one person, and then a good friend of mine, Erin, who was supposed to be here, but she said, she was, I was like, so what do you think so far? Or, you know, about halfway through, she was reading like each chapter at a time. I'm like, what do you think? About two thirds in, just randomly, she said, you know, I like it better than, um, there's a book we both have read. It's called A Woman Is No Man. And it's a pretty famous book. And she says, I like it better than that book. I'm like, oh, I was just in a state of shock. So it, it, but then again, perception is different, different people's. I wish I could see the book through her eyes. Does that make sense? Like, it's like. Yes, yeah, it does. It's the, see, the thing is you have just begun to do it as you practice doing more, as you do more, you will find your process. You will find that place where you make peace with what you've written and how it will be perceived because what you've written is not you it is a story so it is also a process of kind of you know that's also part of the learning process where we learn to detach the story from us this when somebody says something about the story they're talking about the story they do not know who wrote the story they are talking about the story as the story. It's just like transposing your experience as a reader, right? Like you are a voracious reader, you're reading all the time. But when you're reading, you're not thinking about the author, you're thinking about the characters, you're thinking about what's happening inside the book. For the author, those people are within them. So they keep thinking, this is me, but that's not you. That is the story. And the story is something which is completely detached from the author. Again, I don't know, I, I, I might be misquoting, but somebody said, a very famous author said, you know, when you're eating mince pie, you're not, you know, if you're eating lamb mince pie, you're not thinking of the goat, you're eating the pie, right? So the right. lamb mince pie is not the goat, you know? So right. the author is there and is not there. The author, takes pieces of their flesh and blood and soul and guts and tears and puts it into the book. But the story takes on life on its own terms, right? That's not the, unless you're writing a memoir and sometimes not even all of it then because, you know, you're kind of fitting it into a, a skeleton, you know, you have right. a storytelling, whatever. But the story is not you. So the book is not you. The, that thing is a thing, it's, it's got its own life, its own existence, its own journey, it'll do its own thing in the world. And just like your child is not you, it came from you. But at one point of time, once your child is an adult, your child steps away from you and you are not going to go, for example, into their bedroom. You're not making decisions about their children, right? You're not right. making decisions about their wills, right? But you have been making decisions when they were toddlers, up to right. the time they were teenagers. But when they're adults, and they become their own person, it would be really creepy if you did a few <laughs> things, right? So the same way, like, 
do not creep out you know your book your book is its own entity don't go and stalk it everywhere and say what did you do what did you do where did you go a book is a free thing it goes everywhere so many people you do not know will read your book and who will never know you you will never know them you will never know that they read the book right but right. these people will be reading the book so what is that book that book is something of its own the story is its own right like all the books that you read the author doesn't know shanaz emma is reading it and this is what right. she thinks about it and what they say about it so the same works for the book that you have written because at the end of the day it is a book it is not shanaz so it really doesn't matter what someone else thinks at one whatever you have to respect yes i'm trying to write the best story that i'm going to write but once it's written and it's out there it belongs to the reader it does not belong to the author anymore because it's gone there's nothing you can do to the story now it's gone it's out there let it do its thing don't go and making its will don't go you know poking into their bedroom or their underwear drawer no let them be <laughs> to think my book to think a book has an underwear drawer now there is a concept i love it i love it i want to see the underwear drawer to you know you beneath your skin <laughs> oh yes they exist a book has its own life yeah sure. don't mess with the life of a book you give it the push it needs just like you do to children right but then you do not own your children they're not your slaves right they right. are children they are they come from you but they do they belong to the universe they don't belong to you your children do not belong to you you don't own your children your parents don't own you right they can't make your decisions for you you can't make your decision you know your children's decisions same you cannot make the book's decision for it it is its own thing okay so tell me about let's uh, backtrack a little bit when did you want to be an author like that whole process of like that that seed that said i want to be a writer and then from that point to the book or how did that all come about <laughs> i never wanted to be an author i thought you know <laughs> authors were this separate species and you know who you know that these invisible beings who create these things called books which are my refuge and that's all i wanted really i mean as a child i always wanted a house made of books and i'm i'm kind of working towards that dream because nowadays i stumble everywhere <laughs> over books but that was really my dream i mean i never thought of the authors i i wasn't really concerned even as like whoever's writing this book bless them but yeah it's good i mean i didn't even care who the author really was i was just reading because my dad had a huge bookshelf like he had multiple bookshelves and i just went there because sometimes i preferred that world to the world i was living in it sure. has something like that so by the time i was married i went to malaysia and for the first time in my life i've been working since i was like 18 and uh, earning money and uh, this was the first time after so many years i wasn't earning money and that kind of made me you know <laughs> itchy and uncomfortable and I'm like angsty and you know my husband is 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 a really you know he's a wise person so he said why don't you do something you know 
or whatever. I didn't have a work permit in Malaysia. It would be illegal for me to do that. And if not, then I have to go back to India, stay there for six months. And this I'm talking about, like, you know, I, was, I got married in 2005. So at that time, it was like that. So I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to sit there at my parents' place for six months. And, you know, it's all very annoying, you know. So he said, well, I read this book called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. Why don't you look that up? And you can, you know, he says, you can write, you can do anything from anywhere. And you've got a degree in English. Maybe you could write something and people will want to read it. And I was like, really? And I did that. I did a bit of Googling. And then he got me this IBM ThinkPad with two letters missing. One was I and another was Y. So I kind of copy pasted from the internet every time. And imagine how many eyes are there in, uh, you know, so. Oh, goodness. So, I, I mean, nobody can accuse me of not working hard. Come on. And then I, I got, somebody paid me the grand sum of 20 US dollars for my article. And I was, God, I've got it made. Like, you know, and at that time, uh, a US dollar was meant a whole lot more. And I was like, 20 US dollars? Like for four hours work and I know that's below minimum wages and everything was let's forget about that for a moment I was very thrilled so I started writing and I wrote more and I started making multiples of $20 and multiples and multiples of $20 but what happened was the editor started saying to me you have this poetic turn of phrase I mean you're writing about domaining you're writing about artificial intelligence and things like that because they would give me stuff which I need to make it into an article etc all the research and they said, we feel that your tone is very like, you know, it gets very fictional and poetic. Go to like a workshop and do something about it, like get rid of it. So I went to the first writing workshop and I, I began writing and then I was like, okay, so this is what it is. And I never stopped. It's been years since then. I mean, that was the first workshop would have been 14 years ago. And uh, yeah, and then I think somewhere the bug bit me, like I was like, I have to keep writing and now I can't stop. But the only reason I write even today is because I can't stop. Sometimes I tell my husband, I'm going to take my day off work, I'm off social media, I'm only going to binge watch Netflix and I'm not even reading books, I have nothing to do with the alphabet. I don't know the alphabet, you know, I will not read a book and he's very thrilled and I say I cook and everything. And after I've done my cooking and while I'm cooking, I get something and that's it, go back to writing. And he's like, I thought you're taking a break. I said, I know, but you know, inside me, the person doesn't realize I have to, you know, and I have to do it the day I say I will, do, you know, I won't do things, but I still have to do it because, you know, I will hide. Sometimes I know I've gone into the toilet and written a few things typed into my phone because I'm like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ruin this. I have promised something. And he's the most supportive guy, my husband. He's the reason I'm a writer. He's taken me to all the writing workshops, but but that's that's really where it started. Copy pasting I and Y from the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did it, you manage not, with it, the fonts? Because when you copy paste, like I've copy pasted from the internet just into a document. The font. Oh, you changes. just change the whole font. You change select all and change fonts. I was good with MS Word. I, okay, yeah. good, good, good. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like. That's a huge nightmare right there. <laughs> it's like a huge nightmare. So, okay, so now you've got the book. So you wrote, you have your first draft, second draft, third draft. 
then what do you do? Like you, where did you learn about, oh, I've got to get an agent. And then what was that process like? Well, I started having a huge community of writing friends. I think one of the things that uh, people underestimate a lot is the power of community. And people say that writing is a lonely business and you sit alone and you write. But writing isn't really a lonely business. I mean, when you're writing and editing, yes, you do it alone. Sometimes I don't. I mean, I sit with other people and we are just quietly writing. We just meet and we say 10 minutes of chit chat and then the rest of the time it's Mm -hmm. writing. And now I have moved to Clubhouse and I do the same thing. So, you know, we just are silent for a while and, you know, we are writing for 45 minutes, 10 minutes of chit chat. And it's kind of a Pomodoro method where we are writing and stopping and writing and stopping. But it builds community and then your friends have experiences and they tell you. And at that time, I I started off a blog in 2008. So it's continued for all these years. So I have blog friends and they wrote about their writing adventures. And I knew pretty early in the process how the whole writing thing works because I learned so much from people in the industry simply because they were talking about it, right? If you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on WordPress, If you curate the people you are following very well, if you intentionally curate them, you tend to have a feed which is very educational. So if if you kind of figure things out that way, and that's what I did. And over the years, I figured out, I mean, I also know a ton about self-publishing because I have so many friends who who are published themselves. And I think they're both equally valid ways of going into publication. I just feel what I write is not very easy to sell, you know, self-publishing wise. Like it's not, it's not series, it's not romance, it's not urban fantasy, you know, it's not the genres. And, you know, I haven't yet found a niche, but I don't rule out self-publishing at least something someday. Hybrid publishing is still like you there, you do both. Is okay. Nobody frowns on them anymore. Like people are okay with that. So for me, I kind of uh, picked up a whole lot from the blogs I read. Then I spoke to a lot of people. I went, I attended a lot of writing workshops, both offline and online. And, you know, agents give workshops, authors give workshops, publishers give workshops. So I kind of, I'm a self-taught writer. So I just wanted to know more and more. So I went to more and more workshops. I still do, in fact. I mean, I finished a workshop, I think, less than a month ago, which was on, you know, memoir flash fiction. So for me, it's always about, you know, learning more things and it all pours into my writing in one way or the other, I believe. To me, I knew about agents and querying and everything long before I had a novel ready to query, simply because there's so many writing friends. I mean, I have writing friends who go back, like blog friends who go back as old as the blog is, which is 13 years, and I've known them for that long. And when people know each other, even online, without meeting each other, they tell you things. They, 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 I mean, they're all my mentors. I mean, I just try to pay it forward whenever I can, but I wouldn't have written a single word if not for the community. So, yeah, it's all due to the writing community, which is really the kindest and the sweetest place. If you give that energy out into the world, I think a lot of people find a lot of negativity in the world but I kind of believe that you perceive what you look for so if you're looking for kind people you're bound to find them that's what's happened to me I mean I cannot name a single writing friend who's unkind or anything I mean they've all been very very helpful yeah it's been very actually um 
the writing community that you mentioned it's just very surprising to me because so I interview authors like for author conversation like I'm talking to you right now and when I had to work on my first 20 pages I had just on a whim I contacted some authors that I had interviewed on my podcast and I was pretty sure they would say no because they're very busy you know they're working on their books and I emailed them and I said, hey, I need, you know, these first 20 pages. Are you willing to even read it? Or, you know, and I had like three or four people who said yes and read it and got back to me. I was just like blown away by people's kindness. It just, blo- just it still blows me away. Just- well, that's how it works. I mean, the community works that way. I think all of us writers know that the struggle is real. We've all gone through situations. Everybody has. And you know, in some ways, the struggle is very individual, in other ways, it's very universal. So everybody kind of, you know, people who have empathy will definitely, you know, if they are able to make time, they will make time. And people try to make time. I mean, so many people have made time for me, and I'll I'll be eternally grateful to them for that. Right, right. So what is your secret talent? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. My secret probably is that I have no talent. I think that is not uh, true. Uh, uh, no, I I do believe for me personally is that uh, I have a lot of one thing which kind of helps me in this journey and which is the inability to give up. So no matter what happens, I I cannot. You know, I'm I'm built like a spring, so you go. You press on it, it comes back point, and you press and it comes back time. So it just twangs back every time. So nothing really, I mean, I give myself some time to go feel bad. And nowadays I've reduced that time to like one day of, you know, eating ice cream or butter or whatever <laughs> it is and watching whatever or reading whatever. But uh, yeah, so I think my superpower, if you like, is the is not talent I don't think I mean there are people who are far far more talented than I am and there will always be people more more talented than I am and you know that's something a to be celebrated and b not in my control so I admire the people who are more talented than me it is more of a struggle for me to do certain things than it is for them but I don't think you know each journey is different right So for me, I feel my strength is the fact that I will want to keep on improving. I will, you know, I will always acknowledge that these are the things that I need to learn. And then I'm going to do my best to go and learn them. And I will just persevere. Like my thing is, I don't know if you watch Finding Nemo and Dory says, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And she goes into the dark ocean, right? And she's just a tiny little fish. So that's me. That's me and Dory. So I just say, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. No matter what happens, I keep swimming. Till the day like I lie down and die, I will just keep swimming. And that's really the only power I have. And which I am, I think pretty reasonably, I feel good about myself for that. That I don't give up. I will keep going at it. There are books written about your superpower, by the way. Like Grit. <laughs> Grit by, uh, yeah. who wrote it? Angela Duckworth, right? Grit? Who wrote Grit? But anyway, yeah, like there are books. I written. haven't read it, but <laughs> yeah, I suppose I have Grit. Well, yeah, no, it's, uh, there is an entire book. Yeah, Grit's an amazing book about just keep swimming. It, it's, it's amazing. 
So tell me about your reading. How has your reading changed? Like, what did you read as a child? And, you know, as you get older, what have you read? And what are you reading now? <laughs> well, as a child, I read probably everything and things that probably parents would like kind of flinch because I read all kinds of things. My, my mother was, you know, she was not really into reading so she never interfered and my dad was very much into reading but he had books all over and nobody really policed me in the sense of what can you read what you cannot read so I remember my dad had a collected works of Bernard Shaw and okay. which was like this fat it was it, it was not small it was big and I read it from cover to cover and I was really snarky for a while as a teenager. <laughs> I would make these really snarky comebacks and my <laughs> mom would be like, what happened to you? You know, I thought they were good, good comebacks. And, you know, and then till my dad discovered what I was doing and he's like, okay, I read Shakespeare and I was like, do thou them and, you know, all over the place. I couldn't understand half of it. And, you know, there were fairies and elves and kings and everything. So it was, a you know, but at the same time, I was also reading Arabian Nights. I was reading Tagore, which was because, because my, I'm a Bengali. So my entire, you know, all of the Bengali uh, literature that I could get my hands on. And, you know, I started with, I don't know, uh, small versions of, uh, uh, you know, Swiss Family Robinson, abridged versions. But the reason I went on to bigger books is simply because, you know, A, we come from, I come from a very small family. So we couldn't really afford multiple copies of books and separate books for children. And then I come from a really small town as well. So they didn't have those books. There were no online ordering things. There was like a local library, which had like, you know, uh, Jennifer Steele or you know Daniel Steele and uh, I don't know Sydney Sheldon and you know all these kind of books and James sure. Hadley Chase and of course Stephen King and you know so I was I was reading Valley of the Dolls when I was 15 I think so which isn't really suitable reading and I was reading Anna Karadina I was reading Madame Bovary I was Ooh, reading okay. Zola I was reading Mufasa I was reading Chekhov so by the time I went into doing my English literature, I kind of did much better in my unknown paper. Like we had a paper, which is world literature, where there was no syllabus. So you just had questions like, and then uh -huh. you just discuss and there was no syllabus. And I got first class marks in that. And I did not get as good marks in my history of English literature, which, you know, it's very easy to score in history of English literature because it's history, right? Like, right, right. And then for a few years, I thought, you know, I had nothing to do with all of this because I, I had this obsession with fashion and I kind of got very carried away in the glamour of that world. And then I said, I don't want to read books. Yeah, who, who, who even cares? But I was still reading. But I think English honors kind of killed that joy for me. I didn't want to, I never wanted to analyze books. And when I, you know, I read Mac Macbeth when I was again, 14, 15, 16. And then when I had to read Macbeth again, then, you know, I had to list the reasons why Lady Macbeth thought this way and why did Shakespeare write. I'm like, what the, what do I care? Why he wrote it? I mean, I don't care about Shakespeare. I mean, call him here, dead. call him here and ask him. Don't ask me. Yeah, he's a dead old man and nobody cares about him. I mean, what, 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 what are these dusty things you want me to do? 
And I did three years of that because my parents insisted that I had to be graduated. Like I had to have a graduation degree. And I said, I refuse to do it with maths and whatnot because that, that would actually involve study. And then I think after I got married is when I started writing. And then, you know, reading was like an optional thing. And also in Malaysia, I was slowly developing my friends and, you know, my husband would take me out for a treat to a bookshop. And then suddenly I started buying books like a crazy person again and reading like a crazy person again. And then I came to Singapore, I think in 2007, and I saw the National Library and it's the one place in the world I'm in love with. Like I am in love, like physical love with that place. Like I've lived there and spent whole days there and, you know, just go out for a snack, eat and come back, go out for a snack, eat and come back and just sit and read there and go back home, like giving myself a backache because you can borrow so many. And now there's Libby. So anything that I want is like on my iPad, there are like 16 books at the moment. (laughs) Same with my phone and then on my Kindle and, Yeah, so now I have gone kind of crazy reading and I read, I think I read everything. I'm very agnostic in terms of like what genre I read. So I would read like, of course, I read crime. That's what I write a lot. I read literary books because that's also what I write, uh, especially the short stories. And then I would read everything, fantasy, romance. I mean, literally like nonfiction, books on writing. So it's like just so many. I mean, uh, very recently, I, a friend recommended, I had this small book club of just my friends. So I invited all my friends who like reading and I said, we'll have a book club. So that's the book club we have. <laughs> and in that book club, my friend, she introduced me to this wonderful author, Sayaka Murata from Japan, obviously. It's a really slim book, convenience store woman. And I was so blown away because she's captured Tokyo so well in this little whatnot of a book, like it's so small. On the other hand, I'm, I just finished reading Tana French's The Searcher, which on the audiobook, it's like 15 hours. So it's a very, you know, I, I'm not, and then I'm reading fantasy, I think it, I'm not even sure what it is, a young adult fantasy or not. I don't know if it's young adult. It's called The Paper Magician by Charles Oliver, I think. And again, I'm, I'm just not so concerned about the author names. I, I just pick things up and I'm like, oh yeah, this premise look, looks nice and I start reading. And nowadays with the library, it's easier. So yeah, I just read a ton. When I go for my walks, I'm on an audiobook. When I'm loading the dishwasher, when I'm folding the laundry. So audiobooks have been like, you know, such a blessing during this long, terrible year, which still hasn't ended for us. So, yeah, yeah, audiobooks are amazing. I was actually, yeah. before you came on, I was working on a podcast talking about audiobooks a little bit because I was kind of dealing with some little bit of an audiobook issue. But um, so tell me about your next book or are you allowed my to tell me? My next book? <laughs> no, my next book is, well, I have a book that's written and polished and which is shelled right now because it is different from my first book. Okay. But the other, the next one, which probably will go out on submission soon, and well, I have news 
I cannot talk about. Okay, but, okay. <laughs> if you can't but, talk about it, that's fine, you know. <laughs> no, but the book uh, is called The Blue Bar. And uh, it's about a bar girl in Mumbai who is given a blue sequined sari and asked to stand at a railway station and pose there for three. And sh then she's, she receives a call and she has to leave the station in three minutes. And that's what the book's about. It's about this woman. So crime so, drama? The genre, is that sounds like a crime drama too. It, it is, a, it's kind of a literary suspense. So. Literary suspense, okay. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, by the time it hits a publisher, I don't know what they're going to call it. That's not my business. I kind of think that's what it is. I don't know what shape it'll take once there'll be multiple hands working on it. But right now, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay, so I normally ask this as kind of like the final question type of a thing. What are your top five favorite books of all time? Oh my God, that's so hard. I am I'm quite a book slut really. So my favorites keep changing. Sure. I don't know if I have top five favorites of all time. Uh, I know that there's one book that I uh, keep going back to and which is definitely my top favorite book because of the emotional ties I have with it. And it's very strange because it's one of the most, I don't know, it's, it's not really a very, uh, how do you call it? overtly emotional books it's it's a very simple book it's old man in the sea Hemingway's old man in the sea yes and I have always found so much from that book every time and probably it's to do with the fact that it resonates so well with me because of that grit thing because he comes back he he fishes and then he fights with all the sharks and he's like fish I'm gonna catch you fish like you know and then the, the, the shark's like I know you're smart but I'm smarter I am eating but you know and he's not eaten he's not had water but and then when he comes in it's a huge beautiful skeleton that he brings in and to me even now I have goosebumps you know I'm talking about it that that book really continues to be like it's like my Bible. I'm not a particularly, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not really very religious, but that book comes as close to religion for me as, as any book possibly can. Like that, that book has been like with me through thick and thin, through, you know, sitting by deathbeds, which I have sat by several, uh, you know, exams, which I have obviously done several physical injuries, healing through fractures and, you know, stuff like that. At one point of time, I was, I was about to lose a leg. So all of, through all of that, I think that book has been with me. So yeah, I don't have five books. I have just the one. That's and great. I know that That's wow. long dead and I, I'm not very particularly fond of him through his, you know, his biographies and they don't paint a very pretty picture. But like I said, I don't care. I don't care about the goat. I'm I'm all about the lamb in spy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Livingston, you know, uh, this book. And yeah, another one which I liked was Livingston Siegel. It just came okay. to me. Yeah, Richard Bath. The rest of his books, I don't know. But Livingston Siegel, I liked a lot. I don't know, maybe also my fascination with the sea. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Anything else you want to tell my listeners about your book, about yourself, anything? I'll let the floor open, be open to you. I don't know if I have so much to say about myself. I don't know if I'm really worth talking about. I don't know if my writing is really worth talking about. <laughs> but I, I would rather say to, because all the people that would be listening, I think are readers. And I think I just want to say in solidarity, because I'm a reader, I will always be a reader before I am an author. If I had to introduce myself and if I could just simply say that I love reading books, that's what I would do. So A, in solidarity and B, also in gratitude because, you know, that I have received so much of love from readers and I think I could die happy because at one point of time when I was writing You Believe Your Skin, my whole idea was to kind of provide that experience for readers where they would lose track of time for a certain amount of time or they would stay awake reading a book because that's what I've done right I have if you could call it wasting but I have wasted so much of my life because the next day I'm all groggy and not professionals why not because I had this rain party right it's because I have stayed up till 5 30 a.m reading and I my ambition really was to create that experience for readers and that's happened with at least several reported cases of you beneath your skin and for that reason I think I can die happy so i just so much gratitude, so much gratitude for, you know, having read the book, so much gratitude to you, for example, you read the book, and you're now here with the podcast. And for all the readers, I think books and readers make the world a better place. So here's to more reading, and here's to books. So that's okay. all I have. And uh, also you, I just, I know we spoke before on Clubhouse, you wanted to tell my listeners about getting on Goodreads and, uh, reading your book or reviewing your book, right? That's important. You could definitely, anybody who's read the book could go and leave a review because I think uh, reviews are misunderstood. People think a review needs to be just like it is in a newspaper. So you have to take your time, you have to write like 10 paragraphs, you have to sound very wise, you have to justify everything that you said. But a review could just be simply, I read this book, I like this about it, and I think this could be better. Or you could just simply say, I did not like this book. Don't buy it for this and this. Oh my God. And both are equally valid. Yes, I mean, for me, I if somebody did not like you beneath your skin, I would be very happy for them to go and say it because that is the right of the reader. I'm on the side of the reader. I'm not like, you know, an author writes, but nobody's compelling them to write, right? Right. Uh, nobody's holding a gun to my head saying, Damianti, if you don't write, you're toast. No. Right. I have written it. I have put the book out there. The reader has paid good money and has invested time in the book. So if they love the book, they can write about it. If they don't love the book, they can write about it. The reason I think reviews on Amazon or Goodreads are important is because we live in a world of artificial intelligence, data and algorithms. So the more there are reviews, the more readers who get to see them. And, you know, readers can make up their own minds. I don't think readers are sheeple. They are not sheep. They know when they read a particular review, if it is all five-star reviews, they'll be like, uh-huh, really? 
all five stars, how come? And then if you see a review which has been written where they say, I don't like this book for such and such reason, then they can make up their mind whether they want to read it or they don't want to read it. So I think the one thing that readers can do to keep books alive in this world where books are shrinking maybe because other storytelling media are taking over. But I think books are worth saving. So the one thing you can do to save books and not just you beneath your skin, you don't have to just go and review that book, but just whatever book you read, take those five minutes when Kindle says, do you want to review? Just put whatever stars come to you, even if it's one star. And here I differ from all authors who would probably ready to, you know, who are probably ready to butcher me right now. But I say it's more important to write a review than not write a review. Doesn't matter what stars you're giving. And you just write two lines, you know. I have read the book, I enjoyed reading it. I read the book and I did not enjoy reading it. Nobody is forcing you to give a reason. But if you do that review, what it does is it really kind of takes the book to other hands. It supports the reader, it uh, you know, supports the writer, supports the publisher, and yes, of course, supports readers. Like, yeah, that was right to, you know, other people find out and who doesn't like a good book? Right. You're, you are an exception in that. I will tell you that. I had an author ask me to review her book and I said, I'm happy to do it, but I'm going to be very honest with you. I cannot give you a five-star review or, you know, and I told her what I would give her if I did do the review. And she said, well, in that case, thank you. That's okay. And I said, okay, <laughs> I respect that. And so you're very different in that. Like if I, if I were to give you any star, if I just pulled a number, if I said, I'm going to give you a one star, you'd be like, okay, fine. Go, go to good reason to it. If I said, I'm going to give yes. you five star, you're like, Shanaz, go, go give it, you know, just review it. And yes. And that's not going to change our relationship. Like you will still be my friend, whether you give me a five star or a one star, because a book is a book. And I think readers need to know what other readers think about that book. And they sure. need to have that honest opinion reviews are not for authors reviews are for other readers and for the book itself and like i said a book is separate from the author so yay books support books <laughs> okay all right well damianti we've been talking for a while i really appreciate your time i appreciate you coming here i know it's like early in the morning in singapore for you so thank you for waking up and uh talking to me and uh, being on my podcast. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your books. Thank you so much, Shanaz. Thank you so much for having me and more power to your podcast, more power to reading. And like I said, more power to books and to you. Wasn't she absolutely lovely? It was such a delight to chat with her and it's always great to get both the perspective of an author and a reader. More author conversations will be coming up. I will have authors Laura Blackett and Eve Kleikman from The Very Nice Box. And also I will have Dr. Adam Stern, the author of the memoir Committed. So as always, stay tuned. Before I go, if you are on the audio app Clubhouse, please look up my name and follow me there. I'll be happy to do a room with you. I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app, Libro.fm, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local favorite bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations 
from bestsellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get two books for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that is L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B podcast. With every listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the links in the show notes. If you love this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. Join the conversation with me on the audio app called Swell. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's a different kind of audio app, but it's still a good way to reach me. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S H A H N A Z A H M E D dot com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time.